Well, we will go ahead and get started. Um, did everybody get notes? We have some notes up at the front. Great. Well, let me pray for us. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 9 today, so you can go ahead and, and turn to that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for this night. Thank you the grace that you've showed us in Jesus. Pray that as we look at your word tonight, we'd have a greater understanding of how you talk about generosity. I pray that our minds would be changed. I pray that our hearts would be changed. I pray that we would live in light of what your word teaches in 2 Corinthians 9. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our format tonight is going to be a little bit different um, than what we've done before. So if you have uh, questions or comments about the passage that we're going to be in, please write them down. Um, You've got a sheet of notes in front of you. Um, Write them down on there. Write them down in your notebook. We'd love to discuss those at the end, but we won't be pausing tonight in the middle to go over questions. Um, So please jot those down. We'd love to have some discussion at the end. When I was 21, year old, uh, 21 years old, like a lot of 21-year-olds, I was at a crossroads in my life. I had a vague sense that I wanted to go into full-time ministry, but I had very little idea of how to move forward with that. I tried to study biology and then business in my freshman year of college, but I flunked out of college due to a complete lack of enthusiasm and discipline. And so I felt like, man, where am I supposed to go with this? So I spent the next year and a half working and then traveling, and I always had the question in the back of my mind, what's next? Where am I supposed to go from here? I failed in college trying to pursue other things. I'd like to do ministry. How do I move forward? Well, as I was traveling, two godly mentors separately encouraged me to check out Bible colleges. They said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but if you want to pursue ministry in your undergraduate studies, check out Bible colleges. And I knew nothing at that time about Bible colleges. But by the time that I got back to St. Pete, I was working on an application for the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And by the Lord's grace, and it can only be by the Lord's grace because I had recently flunked out of school, I was accepted for the following spring semester to study ministry in Chicago at the Moody Bible Institute. And so this huge hurdle had been cleared. I started to see the way forward. But another huge hurdle was waiting for me, and it was one that any parent of college students knows. It was the hurdle of finances. I had no idea how I was going to pay for private education halfway across the country. I just couldn't do it. So I was stressed out about this. Moody offers an affordable education, but there just wasn't any way that I was going to be able to pay by myself for this. And so around this time, as I was stressed out about this great opportunity that I thought was going to go to waste, my dad says, hey, there are some relatives of ours that want to have dinner with you. Now, I had no idea what exactly to expect, but these relatives had been supportive of me in the past. And so I thought, hey, maybe they want to help me along the way as I pursue my education. Who knows? So I was nervous but excited, didn't know what to expect as I went into dinner. And as I sat down to dinner with my relatives, they started to explaining to me that they had been supporting Moody's ministries for years in a variety of different ways. And they continued on to say that while I was at Moody studying for the ministry, they would pay for everything that had to do with school expenses. They were offering me a full ride 
if I was going to go to Moody Bible Institute. And so as I'm sitting there listening to this, kind of in shock that this is what's being offered to me, I thought, you know, maybe they want to pay for books or something like that, which would have been great. But they're offering to pay for everything that has to do with my education. I'm sitting there just overwhelmed. I am going to take this step to move across the country to Chicago to study ministry. This is unbelievable. As you can imagine, I was shocked, and I don't remember much of what happened at that dinner. I was kind of in a fog. I have no idea what I ordered. I don't think I could have eaten very much. I have no idea. But I remember two things very vividly that happened right afterwards. I remember sitting in my car in the parking lot of Tijuana Flats on 4th Street in St. Pete, weeping and thanking God that he had provided for my education. And I also remember a few months later being in the alumni auditorium at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, ready to start my first day of school. And I'm sitting there with all the other new students for my orientation, singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I remember crying then too. And so I have all these students that I'm about to spend the next few years studying with, and I'm just crying like a baby as we're singing this. And I'm not a very emotional person. What I want you to hear from this story is we often view generosity as a transaction between two people. One person has something that the other person needs and they graciously provide it to them. But Christian generosity, as we're about to find out, is never just a transaction between two people. The passage that we're going to look at tonight, 2 Corinthians 9, shows us that God is intimately involved in generosity. And by the Lord's grace, I realized that at that time. I realized that I needed to be thankful to God for providing for my education. This section that we're going to be in of 2 Corinthians deals with the Corinthians' involvement in Paul's international collection of money for poor believers in Jerusalem. Paul is traveling around the Mediterranean doing ministry, but as he's doing that, In each church he stops in, he's collecting money for poor believers in Judea. And if you look at the book of Acts and if you survey Paul's writings, this collection is a major undertaking throughout Paul's ministry. It just keeps cropping up in different places. And it's always funny because it never seems to be the main thing that he's talking about. It's always kind of an aside. Well, in the section that we look at tonight, Paul spends two chapters in 2 Corinthians convincing them why they should give to this collection. To give a little background about this collection, if you look in Acts chapter 11, um, it's, I think it's written down on your sheet there, verses 27 to 30, you see Paul and Barnabas going to Jerusalem, bringing money for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Apparently there had been a famine that was prophesied about in Jerusalem, and there were some believers in Judea who are struggling greatly. And so Paul and Barnabas collect money and bring it to the church there. Well, a few chapters later in Acts chapter 15, you see the famous Council of Jerusalem. And Paul relates what went on in the Council of Jerusalem in Galatians 2. And he, it says in that verse that Paul was asked to remember the poor. And from other sources, it's most likely that Paul in that verse is talking about remembering the poor believers in Jerusalem. So Paul continues this collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem as he travels all over the Mediterranean. As far as the Corinthians are involved, he first mentions this collection in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. And we don't see in that book what the Corinthians' reaction to the collection was. 
But in 2 Corinthians, we're given hints that the believers at Corinth were initially really, really excited to take part in this. They were eager to give money to this collection for poor believers. But now, in 2 Corinthians, we're a year or more down the road. And Paul is having serious issues with the Corinthians following through on their agreement. So he spends two chapters hashing this out. They've started the collection, but they are far from completing it. So in chapter 8 and then the beginning of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul argues for the Corinthians' generosity toward this collection for poor believers in Jerusalem. And he does it in a number of ways. We're going to go through these kind of point by point. And if you read back through these chapters, you'll see where I'm pulling these things from. But first, Paul points to the example of the poverty-stricken Macedonians and how generous they are to the collection. So what Paul does is he says, hey, think of the church in Philippi. Think of the church in Berea. Think of the church in Thessalonica. These believers are poor, but they're giving to these other believers who are in need. How much more should you wealthy Corinthians give to them as well? Paul also reminds them of the generosity of Jesus. He says, Jesus was perfectly rich, but he became poor for your sake so that you would become rich. He's encouraging them to follow the pattern of Christ as they give generously. He also reminds the Corinthians of God's expectation of equality amongst his people. He points back to the Old Testament when the, when the Israelites are in the wilderness and he says, God provided manna from heaven. Some gathered more, some gathered less, Everyone had what they needed. In the same way, the Corinthians have more, the believers in Jerusalem have less, but you need to make sure everyone has what they need. He also assures the Corinthians that the collection is going to be secure against tampering. And so he says, hey, Titus and two other well-known brothers are going to be handling this money. They are above reproach. Don't worry about them putting their hand in the cookie jar. You don't have to worry about that. And then finally, he encourages the Corinthians to have the gift ready. And this is kind of the most funny to me. He says, have this gift ready so that you won't be embarrassed. You've said you're going to give. Now back that up by actually collecting this money for the poor believers in Jerusalem. So in the section that we're going to look at tonight, starting in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, Paul continues his argument for the Corinthians' generosity. What he wants to do is he wants to remind the Corinthians that Christian generosity is never just between two people. This isn't some deal going down between the Corinthian church and the Jerusalem church and Paul's just the delivery guy. That's not what this is about. God is intimately involved in the process of generosity from start to finish. And as the Corinthians realize that, hopefully their purses will be opened up to give to these believers in need. With that background in place, let's look at the first two verses of this passage, verses 6 and 7. In these first two verses, Paul describes the attitude that God expects of Christian generosity. He says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now Paul's emphasis in these two verses is plain. 
It might not seem like it at first, but Paul's emphasis here is not the amount he is calling the Corinthians to give. Paul's emphasis is on the attitude of the giver in the midst of giving generously. His main thrust in these verses can be summed up with that well-known phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. If you look at the passage immediately before this one, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, in that section, Paul's explaining to the Corinthians why he is sending Titus and two other brothers ahead to start this collection. And he finishes by saying this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction, not as something that we're forcing out of your hands. So in verse 5, Paul is concerned that the Corinthians would have the attitude that God expects of Christian generosity, not giving it up because they have to, but giving money willingly. And what he expresses in verse 7 is that same concern. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you look at verse 5, Paul's talking about attitude. If you look at verse 7, Paul's talking about attitude. What about this illustration that's sandwiched between those two in verse 6? Doesn't Paul seem awfully concerned with how much the Corinthians give when he's talking about sowing and reaping? Well, if you understand what Paul's talking about in this illustration, even as he's talking about sowing and reaping, his concern is primarily with the Corinthians' attitude. The picture Paul is painting is this. He's saying, imagine a farmer with an abundance of seed. It's time for sowing, but this farmer is so attached to his seed, he can't bear to part with any of it. So he has to be pressed and persuaded by family members and friends and other farmers to even sow a small portion of what he has. So he goes out in the dirt, he grumpily he sows a little bit of seed, Is that farmer going to be very pleased when he sees what his harvest looks like? Is he going to have this abundance when it comes time for the harvest? Of course not. He only sowed a small bit of what he could have sowed, and the return is going to be minimal. But then Paul flips the, the image around. He says, what about a farmer that properly understands how these things work? A farmer has an abundance of seed, but this farmer can't wait for the time to come to sow. He knows that if he gets out in the field and works diligently, his harvest is going to be huge. So he sows everything that he has, and for a time it looks like there's nothing to show for it. The field still looks empty, his storehouse is empty of seed. But when the harvest comes for this farmer, he has more grain than he knows what to do with. In an agrarian culture, this first type of farmer wouldn't even make sense. Who has a bunch of seed to sow, but only sows a little bit of it? That farmer has no understanding of how planting and harvesting work, and probably that farmer is going to be poor and hungry very soon. What Paul's saying is, in God's economy, the first type of giver doesn't make sense. He has no understanding of how God's provision works, or about the harvest of righteousness promised to believers. Now, thinking about this story reminds me of how the early church is talked about in Acts 4 and 5. So if you want to turn to Acts 4 with me, we're going to look at an example of both of these types of farmers at the end of that chapter and in the beginning of chapter 5. So if you turn to Acts chapter 4 verse 34. 
He says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a small part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias and Barnabas provide a perfect picture of these two types of farmers. You have Ananias on the one side, and he's a great example, or maybe a terrible example, of a farmer who sows sparingly, reluctantly, under compulsion. And then you have Barnabas. And he's a great example of a farmer who sows bountifully, willingly, cheerfully. And the outcome, as you know, for these two men couldn't be more different. Ananias drops dead on the spot. Barnabas goes on to launch the career of the Apostle Paul. What Paul's saying in our passage is, the farmer, the wise farmer, sows cheerfully because he knows it's going to result in a bountiful harvest. He doesn't feel like he's losing something when he scatters seed. In the same way, the Christian should give cheerfully because he knows it's going to result in righteousness and God's glory. He can be assured of that, just like a farmer who sows seed. God is intimately involved in the process of generosity and he loves a cheerful giver. As a believer in Jesus, are you more like the first farmer or more like the second when it comes to giving generously? And remember, we're not talking about the amount being given. We're talking about the attitude as you give generously. This passage is so clear that God loves a cheerful giver and so do you give cheerfully. Now, it might seem counterintuitive, but one way that the Apostle Paul mentions to do that in this passage is by deciding what you're going to give ahead of time. In this sense, giving cheerfully is actually a discipline. Giving cheerfully is sitting down ahead of time and calculating what can I give generously to God's causes on this earth. It's a discipline, but it's a discipline that you can take great delight in. Think about this. As you're divvying up your earnings on payday, do you decide what you can give toward ministries once everything else has been taken care of? I've got a little bit left over. I'll see what I can do for the local ministries. Do you fumble through your pockets as the offering basket is being passed to see what you can spare for the Lord? What kind of loose change you might have in your pocket at that time? Or have you sat down to look at your finances in advance? and put thought and prayer into what you can generously and cheerfully give to God's causes. I encourage you, decide in your heart what you should give. Cheerful giving isn't an afterthought. But once you've done that, once you've sat down and decided, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Give cheerfully. 
You can give like this farmer who sows seed bountifully, expecting a harvest of righteousness and glory for God. Generosity isn't a transaction between two people. God is intimately involved in the process, and a major concern for him is what is the giver's attitude. But God's involvement in generosity goes beyond his concern for the giver's attitude. Verses 8 to 10 actually show that God is involved in the process of generosity from the very start. In reality, the giver would have nothing to give generously if it weren't for God. Verses 8 to 10 say this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Before the Corinthians can begin to think that Paul just wants them to find it within themselves to have a really good attitude in giving away their stuff, he interjects with verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, Paul unleashes this tidal wave of five adjectives to clear up where their stuff comes from. God makes all grace abound to the Corinthians so that they would have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that they may abound in every good work. That leaves nothing untouched for the Corinthians. Before the Corinthians can think it's about them doing every good work, they need to know that God provides everything that they need. The Corinthians need to know that acts of generosity don't begin in the heart of the giver. Acts of generosity begin in the gracious provision of God to the giver. But this passage covers the other side of that coin too. And the other side of that coin is that God's gracious provision shouldn't stop with the person that he's blessed. God makes the Corinthians abound so that they may abound in every good work. In other words, God graciously provides for the Corinthians so that they may graciously provide for others. And the Old Testament passage that Paul quotes here bears this out. You guys can flip to Psalm 112. That's where Paul is quoting from. And at first glance, it might seem like the subject of this quote is God himself, but if you look at verse 1, of Psalm 112, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandment. The psalmist is describing what a person who fears the Lord looks like. The person who fears the Lord will distribute freely. The person who fears the Lord will give to the poor. The person who fears the Lord will have righteousness that endures forever. What a great dovetail from Jerry's sermon this morning on Proverb 1. What does a wise person's giving look like? Distributing freely, giving to the poor, righteousness that endures forever. The person who fears the Lord doesn't just tip their cap to God as God provides for their every need and then goes on to live a life of luxury, ignoring the needs of those around them. This verse does not say God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may have all sufficiency in all things at all times. God's provision doesn't end with the Corinthians getting a bunch of stuff. This is exactly the problem that Paul is seeing in Corinth. 
The Corinthians think that God's provision is primarily for them. End of story. Now, if you know anything about Corinth or have been around the last couple of weeks, you know that Corinth is a prosperous city in a very strategic location. That doesn't mean everybody in the church was wealthy. We know from 1 Corinthians there are poor believers in this church as well. But the church in Corinth has wealth to use for God's glory. But instead of using their wealth to distribute freely to the believers in Jerusalem, instead of using their wealth to give to a poor church, the Corinthians are hesitating about whether to give anything or not. And so Paul returns to the image of a farmer in his seed in verse 10. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul's going back to that same image of a farmer sowing seed that he used in verse 6. But here he adds in a couple of crucial details. Where did that farmer get his seed? From God. What type of harvest can this farmer expect to reap? A harvest of righteousness, a harvest of every good work, a harvest of generosity. It is a great time to pause and point out that people who understand this passage to be God's promise to provide wealth for people who give generously to Christian causes are missing the point. Those interpreters understand this passage to be talking about sowing money and then receiving an abundance of money in return. And so in subtle ways, is Paul actually encouraging the Corinthians materialism? Hey, just part with your money for a little while. You'll get a ton more back. Far from it. The harvest the Corinthians can expect is a harvest of righteousness. The the Corinthians should give because it's God who has given to them. And he's given to them with the intention that they would give to others. In return, the Corinthians will reap something from God that moth and rust can't destroy, a harvest of righteousness. Generosity is not a transaction between two people. It is God who provides for the giver and it is God who provides with the intention that his provision would result in every good work in a harvest of righteousness. God is intimately involved in this process of generosity. As a believer in Jesus, you are called to give generously and with a cheerful attitude. And verses 8 to 10 help you to understand how you can do that. The framework of thinking that you can use so you can part with your seed easily. Do you understand that God's provided everything you have? It's God who provides money in your bank account. It's God who provides clothes for your back. It's God who provides food for your stomach. It's God who provides shelter for you and a place for you to lay your head. How tight-fisted can you really be with your stuff when you realize it's not really your stuff? God has provided everything for you. But he's provided everything for you with a purpose so that you may abound in every good work to increase the harvest of your righteousness. Do you understand that God's provided everything you have so that you would be generous? It's a little cliche to say this, but God doesn't make all grace abound to you so that you can increase your standard of living. God makes all grace abound to you so you can increase your standard of giving. And when you understand that God provides everything for you with this purpose that you would abound in every good work, it frees you up to give significantly. 
Generosity is not a transaction between two people. God is intimately involved in this process. He has provided everything for you, and he provides for you with the purpose that you would abound in every good work. But is that the end of generosity? Is it all about people blessing people and gaining treasure in heaven? Is it all about the Corinthians supporting the believers in Jerusalem and gaining righteousness for themselves? Well, that's a part of it. Paul includes it in this passage. But he doesn't stop there. If generosity is only about the human participants, you're missing the point. Because verses 11 to 15 make it absolutely clear that the end of generosity is thanksgiving and glory to God. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul doesn't close on this note of it's all about you and it's all about the the believers in Jerusalem. The end of generosity is God's glory. And if verses 8 to 10 overwhelmed the Corinthians with the extent of God's provision for them, verses 11 to 15 should overwhelm the Corinthians with the end game of their generosity, God's glory. Through us will produce thanksgivings to God, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. They will glorify God because of your submission. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In this section, Paul lands a crippling blow to the Corinthian self-centered view toward generosity. We have no idea if the Corinthians were hesitant to give because they hated to part with their money or if they were hesitant to give because they didn't approve of the cause, or if they were hesitant to give because they got lazy in the collection, or if they were hesitant to give because they didn't trust Paul, regardless of why they were hesitant to give, Paul wants the Corinthians to know this act of generosity is not about the Corinthians. This act of generosity is about God. The Corinthians should care that God loves a cheerful giver. The Corinthians should care that God has provided everything for them. The Corinthians should care that God has provided with the purpose that they would give. The Corinthians should care that God will be glorified through their gift. Those are the things they should be caring about. But instead, the Corinthians care about who's asking them to give. The Corinthians care about how much of their money they're going to have to part with. The Corinthians care about where their money is going. The Corinthians care about who's going to handle their money on the way to Jerusalem. What a blow this passage is to the Corinthians' pride. The Corinthians are so concerned with the human agents involved in generosity that they're in danger of robbing God of his glory. And Paul won't stand for that. The end of generosity is God's glory. It's not about the Corinthians. It's not even about the poor believers in Jerusalem. And it's certainly not about Paul and his co-ministers. It's about God's glory. And what's incredible for me is that in the midst of this intense section pointing the Corinthians back to the Lord, 
And as much as Paul is concerned in this section for the Corinthians to do the right thing for the glory of God, somehow he retains an incredibly positive outlook throughout this passage. Paul remains confident that the Corinthians will supply the needs of the saints. He remains confident that the church in Jerusalem will approve of their gift. Paul remains confident that the church in Jerusalem will long for the Corinthians and pray for them. Paul is so confident, in fact, that he closes this section with thanks to God for what he is going to do among the Corinthians. This letter hasn't even been sent yet. The ink isn't even dry And Paul is confident that the Lord is going to do a work of grace in these stubborn believers for his own glory. Now, it's certainly not the main point of this passage, but are you confident in the work the Lord is doing in the lives of believers around you? Paul had every right to be skeptical about this church in Corinth, They've sinned in every way imaginable. They've committed unspeakable immorality. They've questioned Paul's leadership. They've tolerated false teachers. And Paul is still confident that the surpassing grace of God is on them. Now, I'm not encouraging an unrealistic view of believers around you where you just completely disregard the facts. But sometimes I think that the presence of sin in the fallen world that we live in push us to a complete pessimism about other believers in Christ. And he is writing to believers in Christ. I have very little doubt that I would have given up on this congregation already. Too many problems, too many questions, too many sin issues. But Paul is confident that God is going to work grace in the Corinthians for his own glory. Do you express that to believers around you? Do you regularly pray to this effect, even for believers that seem to be straying from the path like the Corinthians were? I think Paul prays with that confidence that he's going to work grace in their lives for his own glory. And I think you should too. But back to generosity. From beginning to end, God is intimately involved in this process. God is the source of generosity. He's graciously provided for his people so that they may abound in every good work. But God is also the end of generosity. He is glorified as his people use their possessions to provide for others. If you can imagine for a second the overflow of thanksgiving to God that's going to take place when Paul brings this collection from all over the world to these believers in need. These believers can't help but be encouraged as they receive gifts from places they've probably only heard of. Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. Money pouring in from their support. Now the details about how this collection was received in Jerusalem are tantalizingly sparse. If you look at Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 20 tell us this. I'll give you a second to turn there. Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 17. When we'd come to Jerusalem, they've got the collection with them. The brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. 
The poor believers in Jerusalem must have been so thankful to these churches all over the world, collecting money for them. But more significantly, many thanksgivings must have gone up to God for this collection. God was glorified through their giving. In fact, I imagine the response in Jerusalem might have been a lot like my response when I was 21. I was extremely thankful for the gift my relatives blessed me with, but my overwhelming response to their gift wasn't falling at their feet and latching on and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was gracious and grateful. But they wouldn't have wanted that. The natural response for me was to thank God for his gracious provision as I sat weeping in my car in the parking lot of this restaurant. My response was to belt out, great is thy faithfulness with tears rolling down my cheeks during my first week of school because generosity isn't a transaction between two people. My relatives knew that God provided everything for them. My relatives knew that God provided for them with the purpose that they would abound in every good work. My relatives knew that God loves a cheerful giver. My relatives knew that God is glorified through generous giving in his name and thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. My prayer is that your understanding of this passage would allow you to give in similar ways in all for God's glory. Amen.